All right, so 1 John 2, verse 15. Uh, the last two Sundays in the children's ministry, my boys have been learning about Samson. Uh, I mean, he's like one of every boy's favorite Old Testament characters, right? And so one night this week, we were talking about Samson and what they've been learning, and we talked about Samson and Delilah, that whole story. And after talking about that, we, I asked them what they are tempted to love more than God, just like Samson loved Delilah, loved himself more than God. Delilah loved money more than God. She got paid 1,100 pieces of silver from the Philistines. So I asked Owen first, I said, Owen, what, what are you tempted to put ahead of God? What are you tempted to love more than God? And he said, mm, frozen yogurt. I love frozen yogurt more than God. Caleb, what do you love more than God? Spaghetti? Do you love spaghetti more than God? Yeah, I love spaghetti more than God. And I was like, well, this is spiraled out of control. Like, this isn't quite what I had anticipated, or what the kind of the point of the story was. Uh, or, but the point is well taken. There are already two and three, and they are already convinced that frozen yogurt and spaghetti is more satisfying to them than the creator of the universe, who loves them, uh, who has sent his son to die for them. Well, today, in First John, we're going to look at what John has to say about worldliness. We're going to see that John tells us not to love the things of this world. Well, what does this mean? Does this mean that we should not even enjoy frozen yogurt and spaghetti, the things of this world? Does this mean that they're inherently evil and we should not enjoy anything? Well, we'll see. Uh, so we're going to look at today three questions that you've got on your sheets there. Uh, worldliness, what is it? Uh, the poison of worldliness and the antidote of worldliness. We already read this together, but I'm going to quickly read uh, verses 15 through 17 again, where John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Okay, believe it or not, this is the first imperative that John gives in the entire book. What's an imperative? English class, anybody? Come on! Yes, Caleb. A command. He's a senior. He knows these things. Uh, he's, uh, so this is the very first command that John has given us in a chapter and a half. In fact, John, we can look at the rest of the Gospels. John in his Gospel gives far fewer imperatives, commands in his Gospel. He, he lives, like we talk, Ryan talks about frequently from the pulpit, and we talk about an indicative, something indicatively true always comes before an imperative. Well, John lives in the world of indicative theological truth. And so when he does give a command, you had better pay attention, because he doesn't give very many. But when he gives one, he's serious about it. So what's the command he gives us? Do not love the world or the things in the world. This is the first command that he gives us in this entire book. So what is loving the world? What is worldliness? Well, before we get into what worldliness is, let's first try to think about what it isn't, okay? Many have used this passage, among others, to kind of remove themselves from culture, remove themselves from society. So 
Because John says don't love the world or anything in the world, therefore we shouldn't ever watch a secular movie, listen to secular music, read a secular book, ever go to the mall. Um, we shouldn't hang out with unbelievers. And we, should, we shouldn't love spaghetti or frozen yogurt, right? Well, is this what John is saying? After all, he says not to love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves these things, music, movies, the mall, spaghetti, then the love of the Father is not in him. That's what John says, right? So is that what he's saying? Well, I think that while people who interpret it this way, live this way, are well-meaning, and by the way, they're most likely taking the Word of God far more seriously than many of the rest of us, I don't think that that kind of lifestyle is what John is advocating here. After all, in Matthew 11, we see that Jesus himself had enough of a reputation that his enemies called him a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Apparently, Jesus liked to go to parties quite a bit. He had a reputation for it. He loved being with unbelievers. It seems that if we had this definition of loving the world... Uh, being loving anything of the world, then Jesus very much loved the world. He loved many of the pleasures of this world, and he loved the people of this world. In Psalm 24, David says, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. David is saying, Everything in the world is the Lord's. Paul quotes that verse from Psalm 24 in 1 Corinthians 10, explaining that it's okay to eat all kinds of meat, even meat that you unknowingly didn't know that this meat was sacrificed to idols. Now he says it's a little bit different if you find out that this meat has been sacrificed to idols, but everything in this world, he's saying, partake, enjoy. Certainly, not only the things of this world, but certainly we are to love the people of this world. Now there's wisdom in who we regularly hang out with. If you guys missed our talk on friendship and friends in Proverbs, highly recommend you go back and listen to that. Uh, we talked about this at length, about who we should hang out with and why and how regularly and all those kinds of things. But we are to love the people of this world, whether they are believers or unbelievers. We talked about that last week. I'm talking about loving others. So, I don't think at all that this verse in 15, or verse 15, is saying that we shouldn't enjoy anything in creation. Or verse 16, where he says that all in this, all in this world is not from the Father. Right? What we're going to see in a minute, he's saying the things in this world that we sinfully elevate above God, we shouldn't enjoy in that way. So more on that in a minute. So, I don't, also, verse 17, sorry, where he says the world is passing away. I don't think John is just saying, well, this world's going to hell, right? So don't enjoy anything of it, right? That's wasting your time. I don't think he's saying don't ever enjoy anything in this world. So, I think John is saying this world brings glory to God and one way we can enjoy God is by enjoying the things in this world. But as we're going to see, it becomes a problem when we elevate the things of this world to above our love for God. So, side note. While we might tend to look cynically at those who try to like remove themselves from society, never listening to any secular music, never going to a movie, right? I mentioned that they probably take their Bibles more seriously than we do, don't they? How, how, how is that? Well, C.J. Mahaney, in this book called Worldliness, it is really good. I just got it a couple weeks ago and read through it. 
It's called worldliness. Couldn't recommend it any more highly to read through this. But he says, we are often like Thomas Jefferson with our Bibles. Anybody know what the Jefferson Bible is? Anybody know what he did to the Bible? Anybody? Yes, Kelly? Yeah, what were the sections he didn't like? Okay, so Thomas Jefferson had a uh, worldview that said the miraculous cannot happen. God does not, if he exists, he does not interfere or interject himself in this world. So anything miraculous that we see anywhere in the Old Testament, the Red Sea parting, surely didn't happen. Uh, Jesus rising from the dead, surely didn't happen. God does not intervene this way in the world. So what he did was he went and cut out, snipped out anything miraculous in the Bible. He thought there is some good moral teaching in the Bible, certainly, so we should leave that, but anything that obviously was mistaken or misinterpreted as miraculous, we should get rid of it. And so we sit in our soapbox and say, how dare Thomas Jefferson only pick and choose the things that he likes in his Bible, but don't we do the same thing? Don't we, maybe not with a pair of scissors, but consciously or subconsciously get to a verse like this, do not love the world or the things of the world, and be like, ah, that's kind of calling me to actually do something. So let's just keep moving. Let's go back to this world of indicative theological truth. I, I like that. That doesn't actually call me into anything or call me out of anything. So we just consciously or subconsciously kind of snip away at our Bibles. This is, this is, this is dangerous. Dangerous stuff. Uh, so we want to subject ourselves, humble ourselves under this. And what this, if this is the word of God spoken to us, we want to sit under it and what it teaches us. All of it. Even the parts, like Kelly said, the parts that we don't like, we still humble ourselves under it. So, that was a bit of a side note. If that's what worldliness isn't, totally removing ourselves from society, what is worldliness? One commentator I read this week said, a better translation for do not love the world might be something like, do not set your affection on the world. So, for all that we've seen in chapters 1 and 2 about how, who God is, His holiness, how much He loves us and saves us, we see that He is worthy of our greatest praise, our greatest affection, our greatest worship. He is worthy. The things of this world who don't give us anything aren't worthy. So, what John is saying, don't set your worship and your affection on these things. Here is God. He is light in whom there is no darkness at all. He is worthy of your greatest affection. And yet, Mahaney in that book says that every moment of every day, we're making choices, whether we realize it or not, between the love for a world on the one hand that opposes God and love for a risen Christ on the other hand. So we live in a life of continual choice-making over which will I value more, the things of this world or the love of Christ, the risen Savior? So here's, finally, we're going to define this thing that you've got on your sheets there. We can say that worldliness is to gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. So it's basically living like we do in our own human nature, ignoring God, refusing to submit to him, refusing to worship him, we're going to gratify and exalt, I am going to gratify and exalt myself 
to the exclusion of God naturally. This is the way the world operates. But Mahaney observes and warns us Christians by saying this. Listen to this. I want you to really listen and think about what he's saying. He says, Imagine I take a blind test in which my task is to identify the genuine follower of Jesus. My choices are an unregenerate or not born-again person and you, okay? I'm given two reports detailing conversations, internet activity, manner of dress, iPod playlist, television habits, hobbies, leisure time, financial transactions, thoughts, passions, and dreams. The question is, would I be able to tell you apart? Would I discern a difference between you and your unconverted neighbor, co-worker, classmate, or friend? Have the lines between Christianity and worldly conduct in your life become so indistinguishable that there is really no difference at all? That's convicting. Uh, When I thought about that list of things, internet activity, hobbies, financial transactions, thoughts, passions, dreams, how has what I've professed to be true about being a Christian, how has that come into my everyday life. So what does John say about this kind of living, this kind of worldly living where there is no indistinguishable difference? He says if we love things of this world more than the Father, then we don't actually love the Father. This reminds us of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. I know this was like nine months ago last summer, but can anybody think about what I might be referring to in Matthew 6 when we went through the Sermon on the Mount? It's a long time ago. All right, well, in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Remember what we talked about? That Jesus is saying you can't be a spiritual double agent. You can't have loyalties to two masters. No, our spiritual life must be solely devoted to one or the other. And if you are solely devoted to the one, then you cannot be devoted to the other. So this is what John is saying. If you love things other than God, Jesus and John are saying, you don't love the Father, actually. The love for the Father is not in you. So, John then helps us a little bit more specifically to think about what he's talking about in worldliness. So he gives us three things. He gives us first the desires of the flesh. We've got this on your notes. And the desires of the flesh, I think what John is talking about, are the things that we naturally long for, the things that we naturally crave. And we've talked nearly every week about, since I've been here, about these false idols that we tend to worship. Things like money, success, approval, girlfriends, boyfriends, appearance or Images of attractive people. These are good things that we make into God things. Good things that God has created that we make into ultimate things that we worship. On and on and on. We could make this list a mile long of the things that we daily worship. You might remember a few months ago I gave you a C.S. Lewis quote that is so good. I think we've got it up here. That human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And isn't that true? If you just imagine or reflect on your own life, isn't this the story of your life, of trying to find something other than God which will make you happy? But 
indeed, if you really are reflective, you'll find that these things aren't making you happy, are they? The desires of the flesh, then, these things that John is talking about, are things other than God that we think will give us ultimate happiness, security, safety, identity. And this is the first aspect of worldliness. The second is the desires of the eyes. Perhaps most of you, when you heard this desires of the eyes, are thinking about thinking lustfully about the opposite sex, either with people you know on a, or people on a magazine cover, TV, the internet. And while that's certainly true and at play here about thinking lustfully about people, it's a serious component about worldliness that robs our love for God. That's not all that John is warning against. That's similar, the lust of the eyes are similar to the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh come naturally, but the desires of the eyes are things that we see, our imaginations are provoked, and then these are the things that we then dwell on, think on, and are convinced will give us happiness. Have you ever like, seen like an infomercial or something? And it's something, a product that you didn't even know it exist, existed, and it fulfills some need that you didn't even know you had, but then after like 20 minutes, you're like, I can't live without it, right? I cannot live without that thing that 20 minutes ago I didn't even know existed, right? This is a desire of the eyes. These are also things that we see that are sinful, that we know are sinful, but then we become convinced are actually good and right. But I hope that by doing these film and theology nights that we've been doing, uh, you know that I think that we should watch and listen to secular stuff, but we must, as Christians, do so with discernment. What is discernment? Being able to, like, yeah, Saliana? Yeah, so, like, being able to observe and see what is actually good and bad, what is actually right and wrong. So being able to watch with our minds engaged. So I can't recommend this book any more highly, Worldliness, because it talks about, as Christians, how we should watch movies, how we should listen to music, how we should do these things with discernment. But without discernment, what do we, how do we become convinced that things are right? Take, for example, a show like The Bachelor. If we watch The Bachelor without discernment every season long, what will we be convinced that is actually good and right for us? Well, several things. One, that actually a quick and easy, no-consequence physical relationship is not only okay, but it's desirable, right? But then, a little bit more subtly, what about the whole, like, reality show confessional scene, right? Where the, it's just the person on the camera, and the producer off the camera asks them some question. What did you think about this person? Uh, what were you thinking when this happened? Basically, these are just gossip and slander sessions, right? Especially on a show like The Bachelor, right? You've got a girl saying, this girl, I can't believe she did this. How terrible of a person she is when she did this. And then we're like, oh yeah, that's right. We love gossip, remember? Proverbs, it's like a delicious morsel that goes down. And so we become convinced when we watch without discernment a show like this that not only is gossip and slander okay, but it's actually what we should do. All our, our whole life becomes like a confessional scene, right? So, the desires of the eyes. When we see something that we become convinced is not only good for us, but it's okay and it's right, 
right? So John is saying that when we succumb to these desires of the eyes, we're just like the world. It indicates a lack of love for God and a lack of love for others. So desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and then lastly, John gives us the third component of worldliness, pride and possessions. I want every one of you to think about the one thing in this world that you are most proud of to own, that thing, the most important thing that you own. Some of you, it might be a goldfish. Some of you might be a a house, a boat, an RV. Some of you might be your new car, whatever all these things are. Well, okay, if you have this thing in your head, I want to ask you a question. Would you be willing to give it away? Give it away. And if not, why not? Most likely, because you think that thing is the thing that is giving you or will give you some sort of safety and security or some sort of identity and popularity, right? We know a couple who, when they bought a pretty nice new vehicle, they thanked God for it, but then they prayed over that vehicle that they would become people who would easily give that car away if the need arose, somebody needed it. They would be generous enough people that they wouldn't be so tied to that thing that they would give it away quickly and generously. We as Americans are driven by stuff and the acquisition of more stuff, more stuff, more stuff. I'm not going to be happy until I get more stuff, more stuff. And then we have to hire a little storage unit to house our stuff that we don't have room for in our house that we have like forgotten about and we won't probably ever use again, but we're going to pay somebody monthly to keep it for us, right? It's crazy. We're Americans and we love stuff. In this book, Worldliness, they quote this man named David from Uganda. And David had grown up in Uganda. His parents had both been killed. Their families, their family was Christians. And he by God's grace, uh, escaped from that and then came to America. And David says this. This is crazy, but he says, this may be confounding to you, but it was far easier being a Christian in the poverty of Uganda than in the affluence of the states. Prosperity tempts my laziness. It lulls me away from dependence upon the Lord. The affluence draws me toward passivity. It is a daily battle for dependence upon God versus dependence upon my own strength. What David here is talking about is what we talked about when we looked at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You guys remember this parable? Can you guys kind of remember the point of this parable? Was it that all rich people go to hell and all poor people go to heaven? Was that the point? It looked like it at first glance, right? What was the point? I think Jesus' point in telling that parable is that the poor have a greater um, ability to realize their great need. We as Americans have nearly all of our needs met and met overwhelmingly. So we have the illusion of making ourselves great, of self-sustainment, right? We have the illusion that since we have nice stuff, we don't need God's help in anything else. This is... I think what John is talking about here, 
a pride in our possessions, an idolatry of ourself and worship of our stuff. That's why Jesus says you can't love God and money. You can't love this idea that you don't need God, that you can only that you can just buy whatever you need to buy yourself security. So, John then caps this introduction into worldliness with a very logical conclusion in verse 17. He says, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You guys have, I'm sure, heard the little quote, you can't take your U-Haul or your storage unit with you to heaven, right? You can't take your stuff with you. So the worldview of the Christian, what John is describing here in verse 17, is that, the Christian is one who realizes that this world is not my home. It's what Ryan has been preaching through in First Peter. He's titled his series, Between Two Worlds, right? Christians are those who are like sojourners, who are travelers away from this place to our greater home. So how could we, as a Christian, take so much pride in our possessions that we would realize that this stuff is not coming with me. This stuff is not going to save me or secure me. Uh, and so, if you have that worldview, pride and possession, desires of the flesh and the eyes, then this is a worldly worldview, how you see the world. This is how the world operates. And so then John says, what is the effect? What is the consequence of having this kind of worldly worldview? What is the consequence of worldliness? Well, let's look now at the poison of worldliness. Verses 18 and 19, John says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So sorry to disappoint everybody here, but we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about end times and the Antichrist. might do that another time in another book. Uh, but what does this have to do with worldliness, you might be asking. I didn't see worldliness in anything that we just read. Well, it appears, again, we don't know exactly who this church is that John is writing to. It's likely the Ephesians. It appears that in this church at Ephesus, there were some people who denied the teaching of the apostles. They denied Christ as the Son of God and fully human at the same time, and they left with these antichrists, these false teachers. They left the church and probably under some pretty heated conflict with those who remained. So then the Ephesians, were guessing, probably wrote John a letter, and they asked him a bunch of questions. And this letter that we have now, 1 John, is John's response to the Ephesians trying to answer those questions. So we can probably assume that one of the questions that the Ephesians wrote John were, wait, what? We thought these guys were our dear brothers and sisters. They were proclaiming Christ with us, and then they just denied everything and left. This doesn't seem to jive with what you wrote in your gospel, John. Where you, where you wrote something like, huh, I think I lost a page in my notes. There it is. 
where you wrote something like in John 6:44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's what Jesus says. And Jesus then in John 28 says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. These Ephesians are probably saying something like, John, it looks like these guys, our dear friends, got snatched from Jesus' hand. How is this possible? So John says, verse 19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. John is saying, if you leave Christ, you were never in his hand in the first place. Those whom he calls, Jesus calls, he will not lose. If you deny the truth about Jesus, then you don't have the Father. So here's the point about worldliness. It appears from the flow of John's argument that these guys who left the church were in love with the world more than they loved God and loved his word. This reminds us of a guy named Demas. Does anybody know Demas in the New Testament? He's kind of a minor character. Anybody know anything about him? Demas was a close friend and a close companion of Paul. He went out planting churches, sharing the gospel with him. We see in Paul's introductions to Colossians, the letter Colossians and in Philemon, Paul says at the very beginning in his intro, he says, Demas gives his greetings, meaning, here's my guy Demas, my good buddy, and he says to you, Church of Colossae, and he says to you, Philemon, hey, I'm here with Paul, and I'd like to say hello, right? But what happens? In a little note at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul writes, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. This guy, who was with me for so many years planting churches, loves the world, and he left me. We don't have a lot of backstory or context here, but my guess is this love of the world that Demas had didn't just happen overnight. We don't know exactly what of this present world Demas was in love with. Was it money, fame, women, acceptance, comfort, and ease? Like he got tired of being beaten and jailed with Paul? We don't have any idea, but it sure looks like slowly the allure or attraction of all of these things of the world convinced Demas that being with Paul for suffering for the sake of the gospel wasn't worth it anymore. All right, you guys want to hear something scary? I pray that God is merciful, and what I'm about to say is not true. But there will likely be several of you in this room who are professing Christ today, but in the years to come, the love of this present world is going to extinguish your love for Christ, your love for his word, and your love for the church. God, help us that this isn't true. But I'm guessing your parents all have friends that they grew up with in the church. I certainly have friends that I grew up in middle school and high school together who we gathered together and prayed and confessed sin, and now they want nothing to do with the gospel, with God, and with the church. Worldliness is a slow-acting poison It's slowly and methodically killing your love for God, his word, and the gospel. Mahaney says in the book, 
today, the greatest challenge facing American evangelicals, us, is not persecution from the world, but the seduction by the world, where we become convinced that the things of this world is far more worthwhile, is far more desirable than God and his gospel. The world has so much influence on us that slowly we make slow compromises in what we watch, what we listen to, how we dress, how we spend our free time, what we are seeking after, that pretty soon, not only do we not look different from the world, but in reality, there is really no difference at all between us and the world. So when the cost of following Christ is giving up these things of the world, we decide it isn't worth it. If we're going to have to choose between the world and Christ, then we'll choose the things of this world. We'll let go of Jesus. God help us, and I pray that this isn't true for us in this room. But here's what the gospel does. These things of the world that we have by ourselves, by our nature, such a tight, like white-knuckled grip on money, fame, acceptance, approval, education, all of these things that we hold on to so tightly. The gospel slowly releases our grip on these things and attaches our grip onto Jesus, which gets us to the antidote of worldliness. If worldliness is a slow-acting poison, what does John say the antidote of this poison is? Verse 24 and 25. John says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. The antidote of worldliness, abide in God's word. What the Ephesians heard from the beginning, what John just says, was the apostolic teaching, the teaching of the apostles. Which is what? That God is light, and in him there is no darkness. If you, are, if you will confess your sins, God is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins and forgive us of all of our trespasses. All of these things are from the beginning. Abide in what we have taught you. He's saying you don't need some like second revelation, some spiritually mystic experience. Like apparently some of these false teachers were teaching. No, all you need is God's word. It is enough. If you abide in it, live in it, dwell in it, then what is found in it, the gospel, will continue to dwell in you. Then you will abide in the Son and the Father. You won't leave him, leave the church for the things of this world. You won't be plucked from his hand. You'll be old and gray, and on your deathbed, still be trusting him as your identity, your place of safest security. But if you abide and dwell in and live in his word, Puritan Thomas Goodwin, listen to this, this is so good, on his deathbed, he said this. He said, he's dying, he's about to take his last breath, and he says, I'm going to the three persons with whom I have had communion. They have taken me, I did not take them. I could not have imagined that I should ever have had such a measure of faith in this hour. Christ cannot love me more than he doth. I think I cannot love Christ better than I do. I am swallowed up in God. We don't know if he died like right then or a day or two later. But how did he get to this point? How did he get to this point where he knows that Christ cannot love him any more than he does? 
and where he thinks that he cannot love Christ any more than he can or that he's doing and being confident that he is going to God, being swallowed up in him. How? By a lifetime of knowing God through his word. So, are you abiding in his word, dwelling in it, living in it, in the Bible? Do you know it? Do you understand how God has unfolded his saving plan throughout the millennia, and that has now wrapped you up into this saving plan. And not only knowing intellectual facts, remember we talked about last week, it's really easy to know a lot about God without knowing God, right? Are you convinced of, like last week, God's love for you? Do you know him? Finish this up. I heard one pastor say, if you, listen to this, this is Listen, he says, if you want Christ, you can have him. The having him is simple. It's the wanting him that's hard. Trusting Jesus is simple. It is easy. Forgive me of my sins, Jesus, and reconcile me to God. That's easy. It's the world and the things of this world that makes wanting that difficult. To want Christ, you must not want the world. You must not want your sin. So pray that God would give you a clearer picture of himself as light in whom there is no darkness at all so that you might see your sin more clearly, as ugly, as rebellious, and as ultimately unsatisfying. So Read the Bible. Know it. Soak in it deeply. Go back and listen to Ryan's sermon from last week about the Bible being milk, our spiritual food, and how we as babies depend on it and grow in it it's great stuff pray that god would give you a greater and greater appreciation and worship for jesus's work on your behalf to release your white knuckled grip on the things of this world and place them securely on him we don't just ignore the things of this world and try to like stop sinning because it's going to give us approval and acceptance from god but it's when we first understand our great approval and acceptance from God because of what Jesus has done that we see these things as ultimately unsatisfying. The sad story of human history is all of us trying to find anything but God to give us happiness. It's a sad, sad story. And I pray that you would not continue in the trajectory of that sad, sad story, but that you would Release your grip on those things and trust in him as your satisfaction.